0: Hey, everyone, welcome back to MCU Fan Show, episode 286. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I'll be joined by Paul Herman for our spoiler review of Marvel Studios' Secret Invasion, episode two, Promises, directed by Ali Salim, written by, or the teleplay, by Brian Tucker, with a story by Brant Engelstein and Brian Tucker. Secret Invasion was created for television by Kyle Bradstreet, and it is a Kevin Feige production. Before we begin our spoiler review, Want to let you know about Fan Show Plus, a podcast that is exclusive to premium subscribers at patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. And on Apple Podcasts, if you search for the MCU Fan Show channel or Fan Show Plus, you can find it there and subscribe to hear us talk about extra MCU topics that you don't hear us discuss here on MCU Fan Show. Also, make sure you're following us in those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're enjoying the show, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. So thank you so much to everyone who has already taken the time to share their review. And now, on with our show.
1: How you doing, Paul Herman? I am... uh... I'm kind of still reeling from the end of this episode, not gonna lie. not gonna lie.
0: I think a lot of people are reeling from the end of the episode. and I think there are people reeling from certain points in the middle of this episode that right. I, I think create some interesting questions. i I gotta say off the off the top before we start just diving into it scene by scene, I'm really loving this show after the first two episodes, and you know i I have some criticisms that we will definitely get to but i liked it a lot watching these two episodes just for the first time when i had the the screener a couple weeks ago but getting a chance to rewatch these episodes as they're dropping on disney plus i find myself enjoying the series even more because i think it has a lot of meaty very emotional scenes that are very well written and brilliantly acted that just really make it worth uh, make it something to really appreciate on a rewatch so I, uh, I highly recommend if you're watching these episodes once, maybe give them another look as well, especially if, you're li- if you are like them. You may find, uh, like me, that you enjoy them even more. I know this series maybe isn't carrying quite the same level of, of hype and conversation, at least not in my Twitter algorithm. I know everybody's is messed up these days, but I'm not seeing the same type of conversation or the volume for the conversation that we've seen with things like WandaVision in the past. But I would say definitely don't sleep on this series. It's really good through these first two episodes. How are you feeling, Paul?
1: For me, I've been really enjoying it. And this is coming from someone who wasn't in love with the comic series back in the day. I like where the comic series ended ended it, you know, with dark rain. But I didn't really care for most of it. Um, There were some good things within it, but yeah, it, it just wasn't whatever. It was wasn't my favorite th- comic uh, storyline or whatever. But with this series, I've been really impressed that they've just taken the name and they've kind of just run with it. and there's setups there's setups in here that we can talk about and we'll talk about as as we go on, but that kind of lead a little bit more into the comic series, I think. Mm-hmm. That being said, I, I think it's a much better idea of what we're getting because with the problem when i'm and i'm i'm worried about which again not going too far ahead but with the reveal of mrs fury it gives a it gives a better idea of like doing that whole like who is and who isn't a scroll kind of a thing whereas in the comic books they did some reveals that were like retcon and it's just it's it's kind of a mess and i like how they're doing it here and it feels it just feels more organic and more just a more of a natural story to fit with a shield like uh, aspect rather than like a whole superhero event so i I actually really prefer this to the comic book and which people who know me know i don't like saying that all the time because i'm a comic book purist for the most part but i gotta give props where props are due and this is definitely i think a better series and better premise overall than the comic book and I like, I love what we're getting so far.
0: Well, I think it's a better match for the concept that just is implied within the exactly. title and the use of scrolls, mm-hmm. right? Secret Invasion, being a spy thriller, actually makes more sense to me than Secret Invasion as a superhero event. Um, and so, I think that's probably why maybe it's working a little bit better for those of us who, and I'm, I'm with you, Paul. I was never quite as big of a fan or anywhere near really as big of a fan of secret invasion as a lot of other folks were. And that's not to knock it for those of you who are big fans of the secret invasion comic, go back and read it again and love it all over again. Like I, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think for me, it, that series never really reached me in, in the comic books. I never really uh, connected to it all that well, but I am definitely feeling connected to and moved by the events of this series. And, and I said, as I said before, I think it's very well written, which we will get into, and the the acting is just outstanding throughout these first two episodes, and I presume the four that are still remaining. But getting into the episode, we start in 1995 just as a quick recap, a review of how all of this started, but then we get an answer to a question that we were asking last week. So what really happened after that? We know where things... We remembered, for those of us who remember Captain Marvel, we didn't necessarily need the recap, but it's helpful for everybody to just set the tone. But we wanted to know what happened after that. After that hopeful ending for Captain Marvel in 1995, where Carol is out in front of the ship that the Skrulls are going to take to go find a new home, why did that not work out? And and what happened in the somewhat immediate or short-term aftermath of that? Well, we get an update two years following Captain Marvel, we're in London in 1997, and we see Fury greeting a Skrull named Vara, who introduces a young Skrull named Gravik, and she goes through Gravik's backstory. Parents were killed in the last stand against the Kree. He escaped from behind enemy lines, piloted a ship all on his own. He's smart. He knows how to survive, and Vara thinks that Fury and the team would be able to use someone like him Fury has reservations because he's a child, but Var points out only to human eyes. Gravik tells Fury when he when Fury warns him that the work ahead would be dangerous, Gravik tells Fury that he's not afraid, and so here we are establishing the relationship. We knew that there was something very personal between Gravik and Fury, and we see that Gravik was very young, maybe not as young as by human standards, but still very young, still very much a, an adolescent scroll by their, uh, by their standards. So a, a very young person who were very young when Fury entered his life. Um, and we also see though from very from a very young age, just how capable Gravik was, which demonstrates his credibility for everything he's able to do now. He's just kind of always been really driven and really good at these things and also very much uh, unafraid. I wouldn't have minded in this scene, Paul, seeing a bit more to bond them. Like before, since Fury had reservations about Gravik joining the team, I think it would have made sense for Fury to not lead right into the warning of how dangerous it was. I would have appreciated, honestly, a whole other scene. And I don't think there's not room for it in this hour long episode, but in some other structure of the series. And maybe we'll get something else in another flashback. Mm -hmm. But I think showing Fury having reservations about recruiting Gravik in the first place it would have been helpful if Fury didn't go right into the work and there was maybe something else that happened or was said between the two of them that bonded them and also convinced Fury that Gravik was somebody who was actually up to the task despite being so young. So I liked the scene. It's a lot of very good, very helpful information in terms of just establishing that early relationship between Fury and Gravik. But I also feel like it could have used a, a bit more, but maybe we'll get it in subsequent flashbacks in the series.
1: Yeah. See, I, I read it the, the latter, what you're saying, because when he sits down and, and says, like, you know, it's going to be dangerous, and they're kind of, I, I kind of got the sense of maybe there's like a, the surrogate, mm. surrogate father. Like, kind maybe of he was trying to
0: talk him out of it.
1: Yeah. Like, that's, I think, that's fair. Yeah. Like, like, <clears throat> Like, like I think that we're we're going to be getting more as we go to why even more so like Gravik is going against yeah uh, I think so theory and I think and I think that's the whole thing like there it's more of a setup of cuz we're, we're we're getting we're getting Gravik in this whole episode right of of going and he's Gravik is gravitating um to this this new status within the scrolls and I think that where that motivation is, we're seeing the seeds planted already. And I, I like the flashbacks and I appreciate that because they are also like, again, the, the, this has been a slow burn series, right? And people, I, I guess, have been criticizing that. And it's not it's not the most exciting, uh, I would say, from from the standpoint of hype of, oh, my God, like, you know, like, like really crazy things happening because it, it's very much a slow burn slash, you know, more of a psychological um uh you know espionage kind of thing where it's just not it's just not built on fireworks and all the time it's it's more of the gradual thing and i like this it's a a different feel for a marvel series that we've gotten i think it is and and you know what i i again i always say the the thing about marvel and dc and a lot of these superhero universes is that they're not they're not as they're not that uh you can't put them in a box. They're all different, and you can no. tell so many versatility
0: has always been the strength of superhero based storytelling. You yeah. can tell so, any kind of story with these types of characters.
1: Yeah, and so now we're getting like this whole thing, and again, and now I'm also I'm I'm into this because we don't we don't we didn't know like Fury had a family, and I'm wondering does he become Fury's like surrogate son, and that's going to be the eventual thing that we lead to see that that Gravik is. Yeah, He's, he, you know that's run he i He's definitely I like
0: more than just a really young recruit. I it's I think there is exactly. mm-hmm. there is more to that bond, and so I want it. I still would have liked a, a better introductory bond, we'll call it. But I think that's they better. can they can still make up that ground in subsequent sure. flashbacks, and and I do expect that they're that they're going to. Um, but as part of the same meeting, it shifts from Fury and Gravik to now the entire group of scrolls that are there. Talos starts things off recapping the last two years that they went in search of a home. All they found was violence and hate. We see, of course, Talos' family is there, Soren and Gaia. The Skrulls who've made it there to Earth are there because of, as Talos says, this man, uh, Nick Fury, and this is someone who Talos trusts. Um, And so then Fury gives his pitch of saying that the Skrulls, while they're here on Earth, they can work with him they'll have to all wear a new face and he says while you work to keep my home safe carol danvers and i will find you a new uh well we'll find you a new one find them a new home soren is the first to take the pledge and then others follow and fury says you keep your word i'll keep mine and then the camera holds on Gravik before we cut back to the back to the present day in the aftermath of the bombing that concluded. Uh, the last episode, we see Fury was grabbed by Talos. We see the air quotes American, that Skrull who we saw last week, Brogan, is captured, making sure to tell everybody very vocally that he's an American, he's an American, to set up that frame job that uh, the Skrulls have been working on to try and kick off World War III. But uh, getting back to that uh, that flashback sequence, this is it, right? We were wondering, we, we knew we would get some answers in terms of why the scrolls feel the way that they do, why there is some animosity here, and with the title of this episode being Promises, here is the big promise, here is Fury's promise that a lot of people feel like, even though Fury, Fury in a Nick Fury way could technically say he never put in, included in his promise a date or how long it would take to find a new home, but it's been about 30 years, and so it's under, understandable why Gravik and many others feel that Fury broke that promise that he made that they did their part in order to get a in order to secure a new home. They did whatever he asked them to do, be his spies or errand boys, as Talos calls out later in the episode. They delivered their part. It's Fury who didn't deliver or hasn't delivered on her on his end, which from their perspective, understandably so, constitutes a, a broken promise and Talos is the one who when we talk about the animosity towards Talos well it's very explicit in this scene Talos is the one who stood up in front of everyone saying I trust this guy you should trust this guy he's the reason that we're all here let's put our trust and our faith in him so it was Talos with the recommendation fury with the broken promise and for the for the scrolls and their perspective they've worked and risked their lives for Nick Fury on faith and because of this promise for about 30 years. And really what they've been doing is risking their lives to protect someone else's home. So it's an, it's not totally unfair for them to wonder, since they've been fighting to protect this, fam- this planet, since they've been fighting and spying and everything they've been doing to try and help Fury protect Earth, why can't it be their home too? And that's why we see them uh, fighting for it. Doesn't mean you agree with or condone the way that they're going about it, But in terms of the motivation and where that's coming from, it's pretty easy and plain to understand, but but very well delivered in this scene.
1: Yeah, I would say that this another another setup here, because I think there's got to be more to it for um, Nick Fury just being too busy to finding a home planet. And that's where I'm just kind of I'm curious where this is going to tie into possibly the Marvels. And um, and more cosmic adventures like that. And, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but that's where I that's where my mind kind of goes, because I'm because it, it could just be as simple as I was just too busy. Like, I, I mean, well, <laughs> would
0: be- you could see the I, I think some of the difficulty, it, it's not so much about being busy, although Nick Fury is famously a, a very busy yeah. guy. Yeah. But sure. I think part of the reason why maybe and this could come up and, and be explained just as throwing it out there as a theory as to what's been a challenge is maybe the reason they haven't been able to find a new home is all the reasons that fury has believed that they couldn't just find a home on earth or couldn't just be home on earth that anywhere the scrolls wanted to go that the other the new host planet or home planet um if it was a, a planet that was actually livable for them other people were there and said no we don't mm-hmm. want the scrolls here um and See, so like mm-hmm, that yeah. and that could be that could be the issue i mean they they meant Talos references that like all they ever found was violence. So that's probably what happened. Is they met violent resistance anytime they tried to find some other place to live. Now you could still say that the universe is a very big place, and at some point they should have, within thirty years, been able to even by sheer luck stumble upon a planet um, that they would have been able to live on. But um, you never. But obviously that hasn't uh, hasn't ultimately happened or ultimately come to fruition for them i i don't think it's a problem that fury has ignored at the same time has it always been at the top of mind and top of his top of his list clearly not because we've already spent time with fury being focused on other things in his various adventures yeah. uh, in the mcu so um, yeah
1: well, go ahead. here, here, here's my take. I, my, again, my quick speculation would be: I think there, there's more to the story of, of why there hasn't been a planet found, and I think that there might have been, but so, and I don't know what it is, but I think something prevented it from happening, and that he couldn't tell the scrolls, and it was like crap. I found multiple options, but something happened. Like, I, I don't know what that be. I, I wouldn't even be surprised if maybe one of like Talos was like, no, this is not, this can't be it. You know, so it's almost like there's something. I'm not saying that's what happened, but like there's something like that where it whoever, when they found something, it wasn't good enough for the high ups, so that the the other scrolls didn't know about it. Something like that. I that's my that's where my take going to go with a little bit, because there has to be some kind of dramatic thing with the homeland, right? I, well, I, I and also
0: keep in mind the Kree yeah. are still out there, and the Kree exactly are still exactly. hunting them. So it's not only a planet that is willing to you know open itself up to the scrolls and have them live there but it's also a planet that can keep the scrolls lives there a secret and you know be willing to do yeah. that because that that's another thing it's not even necessarily that the citizens of another planet would say we don't want the scrolls because we don't like the scrolls they could very easily say we don't want the scrolls because we don't want the target on our backs like the if the Cree come here do you, uh, to attack the Skrulls again we don't want to be collateral damage in that process so there are a lot of reasons why and I'm sure there were numerous stops over the past 30 years and numerous negotiations to try and find some other spot where they could live and each either for similar sets of recurring reasons or it could have been a, a brand new reason every single time it, it just hasn't worked out over these past uh, over yeah. these past 30 years but meanwhile there has been the question staring them right at the face of, well, there's already a planet here that they could potentially call home, so why don't we make that happen? Especially since, from the scrolls perspective, we're already putting ourselves at risk in order to protect it in the first place. We're protecting this place. Why can't it be our home? Um, which is, uh, certainly understand that question coming from them. So then, back in the present day, Talos and Fury are on a train out of Moscow. Fury tells the story of taking train rides with his mom from Detroit uh, to Detroit from Alabama, talks about riding in a segregated car and and the food that they would eat and making up games to pass the time. And the game that Fury shares with uh, with Talos is Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Fury shares the story of telling his mother something she didn't know about Susie, which was ultimately a lie. But this was classic Nick Fury. I I really love this scene and him talking about the whole game of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Um, And the reason I liked it so much is it was very much very reminiscent of the scene in the elevator with Fury and Steve Rogers and Captain America, the Winter Soldier, when Fury told him about told Steve about his grandfather and the grandfather who used to, you know, operate an elevator, carried home his tips, but then started bringing a gun in the bag because people were starting to ask about what was in the bag. And so and, and that was really for Fury telling a story about trust and and not necessarily trusting people and and be prepared before showing Steve Rogers, here's all the guns we're going to point at the world with these three uh, helicarriers, which kicks off the philosophical debate within Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Well, here we have Fury sharing this family anecdote with Talos to get him to play the game. Tell me something I don't know, because Fury has very quickly realized that there is a lot more here that even though he and Talos have had this good friendship, They haven't been in contact now, all that. They really haven't been in much contact recently, and a lot of things have happened. And so Fury knows that there is something Talos isn't telling him about the status of the Skrulls on Earth. And what Talos reveals here is that there were a million Skrulls that survived the destruction of Skrullos brought on by the Kree. And turns out roughly all of them are on Earth. Roughly one million Skrulls are currently on Earth. That's not at all the number. That Fury thought it was basically every scroll, as Talos puts it, that isn't in Emperor Droge's uh, colony, uh, whoever Emperor Droge is, and if that is going to be something that comes up in this show or in the Marvels or somewhere else. Um, but obviously, it's a big, big number of scrolls who are here on Earth. Fury is, uh, of course, angry that uh, that he feels Talos lied, but then. Why I love this scene so much is even though Nick Fury is the one who's kind of steering the conversation with his anecdote, telling the story about the game, bringing Talos into the game to extract more information, scenes are really great when both characters get to have the same amount of validity within their perspective or the same amount of weight behind their perspective. And so when Talos is explaining how all of this happened, Talos is calling Nick Fury if for Fury to call out Talos for lying or withholding that that information, Talos also has his own reasons behind it saying that um that Fury was happy to use them as spies, but in terms of now it's it's not okay for all these scrolls to be here because it's not on Fury's terms. Fury tries to come back with the the host gets to set the terms of visitation, but Talos gets a great line when he says, well, the host was gone, and he didn't think that Fury was coming back. Obviously, when Fury turned to dust in Infinity War, nobody knew that anybody from the blip at that time was going to come back. And so during the blip and everything else, Talos Talos was just trying to help his people survive. And then beyond that, even after the blip, Talos says, even when you did come back, there was no talking to you about anything real. Fury was up on Saber for years, and Fury tries to say, well, you knew how to contact me. You could have told me this. You didn't contact me because you wanted to keep this information a secret. But I think it's very easy to, to see Talos aside in this conversation. And as he even points out, his dream really is that humans and Skrulls can coexist on Earth, which is in the middle of where Fury is, of Skrulls got to find a new home, or Gravik, It's not about coexisting on Earth. It is about the Skrulls just flat out taking over the Earth. Um, Talos has the most hopeful outcome, the most optimistic dream for all of this, which is that humans and Skrulls can coexist. Fury doesn't think that's possible. Um, Humans have been at war with each other throughout history, as he points out. And Fury says there is not enough room or tolerance on this planet for another species. And then Fury and Talos uh, part ways. I thought this scene was huge, not just because of the the scroll status update, and it is a big deal that there are a million scrolls on Earth, but I think the emotional stakes in this scene, the motivation for the characters in this scene, and look, Talos was right to help in terms of there's, it's his people out there who are suffering, and he knows a place where they can at least have safe harbor, and for him to offer that, especially with a lot of it being in the wake of the blip it just makes sense as something that Talos would do. And Talos was trying to be hopeful in an otherwise hopeless situation that had gone on for decades in terms of the Skrulls um, on, on their home planet and on Earth and everything that they've been through. But Fury's cynicism doesn't come from out of nowhere, and it's not Fury just being the cynical super spy for the sake of being the cynical super spy. His cynicism is not unfounded. What he says about human history is accurate. Hell, it's still accurate for our world today in in many respects. And I think for, and he also, by the way, in the the start of this scene, just described a situation of Black Americans being treated as others. So he has his own history with this. So why would Nick Fury, from his perspective, with everything that he has witnessed, everything that he has experienced firsthand, um, everything he's been told, everything he's learned, why would Fury believe that there's more tolerance in the world than what he's actually been able to observe. So what you have in this really great, very well-written, very well-directed, very well-acted scene is a philosophical conflict between these two characters, these two longtime friends, um, and each of them puts forth the valid perspectives for their their differing sides. I love this because these types of scenes where there's no... Easy answer. It's a whole lot of gray, and these two friends arguing back and forth, finding some way through it. I thought was incredibly well done.
1: Yeah, th- this was obviously a, a, a callback, a little bit, obviously to the Winter Soldier scene like you you had said, and, and that's the first thing I, I thought of when once Fury started going into it. The one thing I would say, and, and usually that I, I those kind of callbacks, I feel are not cheap sometimes, but they c- they can be if you use them incorrectly. But all that to be said. I love this part and I thought it was a great callback because he uses his, you, you see where fury, you know, he is naturally great at what he does because of his upbringing and what, and the fact that he's, you know, he's learned and has had learned things the hard way and through other people, the hard way, you know, there, there are hard experiences too. Right. And I think that that it's this really interesting aspect of this character that we never got in the original uh, Caucasian version uh, of, if you will which I always love that Nick Fury too, but this is obviously a lot more layered, complex, and I think a lot more interesting version of Fury. And I think based on, you know, using these things, uh, is, is really interesting aspect. Now I love how they, they, they take it and he's using it similarly. similarly, if I can say that correctly. Um, but obviously this is a lot different and, and using a different context. And I love how it's not just using them to prove a point, That it's because just like in the last scene with 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 Captain America, when he talks about the elevator and having to have a gun with them, this is a lot different because it's it's even more so kind of flips. You know, it's it's not flipped of like proving a point. It's like, how do I get you to get me to tell you more information without just asking you and trying to be nice about it? You know, it's it's disarming. Uh, Exactly. And
0: that's Mm -hmm. that's what it shows, though, for Fury as a spy, as an interrogator, as all of these things. And it's weird to consider that context with Talos being a friend, but I don't think Fury can help himself. There are certain techniques that he's developed and he's Mm -hmm. perspective, you know, that he's developed, that he's honed for the decades that he's been doing this that I don't even think for Fury he thinks about it. I think it is something where it's just naturally where he goes in these situations. And look, it's very different. Like, the result for why he did that with Steve or the reason behind that, he wasn't trying to get information from Steve. He was trying to provide context for something he was about to show Steve. But here we see a similar method to now in this time, instead of just cushion the blow or prep somebody to receive information, in this case, it's being used to extract information. But Nick Fury knows this, and it doesn't mean that his relationships are insincere. His relationship with Talos is insincere. His relationship with Steve Rogers is insincere. I think Nick Fury genuinely likes and respects and certainly uh, I don't don't know where he's at in terms of his friendship love with Steve yet in Winter Soldier but he definitely because they didn't know each other that long at that point but he's known Talos for decades very clear from what we see in the first episode that he really loves Talos as a friend and so I, I think that for Nick Fury to behave this way I think it's in some ways he can't help himself with his approach because these techniques come so natural to him but that's actually why I like it as a callback is Fury would use and employ similar techniques. Um, and I like it that it happens in a way where he's presented as if he, as if he can't really help himself. But despite that, despite the technical approach to it or the similarities in the approach, I think what you still see is even through that, there is, there is sincerity in the way that Nick right. Fury is communicating what he's actually communicating to his friends as they are having these uh, these very difficult conversations. But I thought it was a, a fantastic scene. Now, the next place we see Nick Fury is in London. Uh, we see a flag over a casket that uh, is for Maria Hill, who we talked about how she was shot. We didn't talk about her just full-on dying in the episode last week. I didn't really know how to handle it last week. I know in interviews right after the episode or in the days following the episode... Um, They were saying that, you know, that she had died. And that was certainly my instinct when I saw the episode for the first time. But for anybody who was thinking, because look, there are rules to movie deaths and TV deaths in terms of what you see and somebody going still for a couple seconds before the camera cuts away when they've been shot in the in the stomach can mean death but there's also a way to walk that back the very next week so i wanted since i knew for sure that it was confirmed in episode two um i wanted to wait before i talked about wait until episode two before i talked about it as a death and of course in this scene um fury is there to see maria's mother elizabeth and fury says uh informs her that because she's giving uh she's getting a and a debt of gratitude is what Maria's mother is getting, but not the truth of what actually happened. And Fury can't say everything, but he does share that Maria Hill was killed in Moscow and she was killed to hurt him. And Maria's mother says that Maria believed in you. She would have followed you to hell and back. And in reference to her death says, don't let it be for nothing. Um, this scene is fine, you know, as far as showing an emotional connection to a character, although It feels a little quick and a little forced to be here's a mother of Maria Hill whom we've never met to just use what we as an audience member just already understand about mothers and mothers and children. And obviously that's a devastating loss and it provides an emotional connection there for Maria Hill. But at the same time, and and it's. It's a way to show Fury's guilt and the responsibility that he feels for it is here he has to see the impact that Maria Hill's death is is having on somebody who isn't part of this um, in the way that, uh, that Nick Fury is or that Maria Hill was. And so, I don't know. Some of this scene I, I didn't totally love because as I said, it just felt like we're introducing character, we're very quickly introducing a character to serve a specific purpose and then we're just kind of done with that. Um, and and it, it also even points to like what was Maria Hill's purpose in this series? Was she here just to die? Because that's kind of how it comes across uh, in the way this is. Although, I mean, there was the good scene between Maria Hill and, and Nick Fury where she talked about how he's not in the same place. He's not the same person he was or that he was prior to the blip. So she played an important role there. But it's it's also just... I don't know. This is a a little bit of my knock on the show so far as I I think a lot of this stuff with Maria Hill hasn't been handled particularly well, but really this is just maybe me being on my soapbox for Maria Hill, perhaps one last time, and I'll address that perhaps in a moment. I've been critical of Maria Hill in the MCU before, and let me very quickly uh, clarify, none of this is any shade or criticism of Kobe Smulders as an actor. She has done a terrific job with what she has been asked to do. I also think that she was perfectly capable of doing a lot more had she been asked to do that by the, through the writing and the directing and everything else and all the other decisions that get made into who Maria Hill is going to be or got to be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Maria Hill is a character I've always liked in the comic books. I think she is really interesting. She's really complex. She's also at times just a very cool character, very badass character who, as I said, has a lot of complex interactions with the heroes on their side against them. You know, she can be on the team or she can be antagonistic, depending on the situation. Um, of course, as we saw in Civil War, like I think Maria Hill is a really great character in Marvel Comics. And that was a character I was very excited to see in the MCU. And look, it's not some huge deal that undoes and unravels the entire MCU for me. Obviously not, because we've seen her, we've been uh, watching her in these stories since the Avengers in 2012. And so for the past 11 years, this has been an issue for me in the MCU. But Marvel Studios has gotten so many of these characters right in their adaptations from the page to screen. Maria Hill is one that I just feel like they flat out got wrong and they really underserved this character in the MCU she was never really the force that she was in the comic books and that's true it's not it's not that she's the only character that that's happened with but she it's the most glaring example for me because she does have a recurring role in the MCU but not in a way that is anywhere near as significant or meaningful as it's been in the comic books so maria hill will just now go down i guess permanently as the uh, as one of the great missed opportunities i think of the Marvel Cinematic Universe but Again, it's not something that unravels really anything all that much because the overwhelming majority of characters that Marvel Studios has presented to us um, have been handled very well and adapted very well from the source material. And then just to finish by addressing that, perhaps I know death is a very complicated thing and it's hardly a commitment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think it's fair to say that at at this point. Um, And so you could certainly make arguments. Fury faked his own death. Um, in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Who's to say that Fury didn't help Maria Hill fake her death and that it's not part of the plan? Maybe if Maria Hill, when she calls out Fury for not being three steps ahead anymore, maybe that's when, in that conversation, they discuss the plan of how they're going to fake her death and she's going to come back at the critical moment to help Fury stop Gravik and and Maria Hill is back. And that's not actually her In that casket, that's something there's some other swap that's been made, or whatever it may be, right? Sure, all of those things are still possible. And and reportedly, Colby Smulders is in the Marvels, which doesn't necessarily mean she isn't dead. Perhaps it just means the Marvels takes place between uh, before Secret Invasion. We don't really know where all of these things are falling exactly, um, on the, the MCU timeline. I mean, they did say present day for Secret Invasion, maybe the Marvels is. A little bit before this we'll we'll have to see but in any event if this really is it and it may not be but if this really is it for maria hill i do feel like that's uh that character from the comics was let down by the mcu not by kobe smulders but by just how that character was was envisioned and, and ultimately brought to screen in the mcu
1: i'm gonna go ahead and say she's not dead i've i've i never believed it once i'm like no not happening that's just me I'm just leave it at that the only thing I'm going to add to this is that I agree with you that Maria Hill has been kind of a letdown. There's a, there's a smidge, in my opinion, in the first Avengers film that kind of is more true to her characterization in the comic books, a little bit complexity, a little dark, um, you know, has there's, – there's something there. But it's just – they never really fully dived into it. And I feel like – and to be honest, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show – would have been a great avenue to have a Maria Hill character in there, but that's not the direction they went, obviously. But um, who's to say that couldn't still happen? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Maria Hill needs to be, uh, could still be, we don't know, but I, I think the character in the comics is way more interesting, way more dark, even more, I would say.
0: Uh, I'd say a more complete, fully developed, multi-dimensional human being oh, in the comic oh, books for sure. compared oh, yeah, to yeah. what's been presented in the is. MCU.
1: Yeah, it feels like she's instead of being like, because in the comic books, we see her be the head of shield, right? Like that we've seen that and we don't really see that here. So she hasn't been allowed to, I think, be that character yet. And that's, that's, and again, what goes to your point, it's not, she's not been been treated the best in the MCU. And I think that honestly, Maybe Secret Invasion will, will will have that at the very end if she survives. So I'm just gonna say it right here, I think Rihel is a very interesting character and I would love to see what she does in the future. So yeah, I I'm really hoping that she's not dead, but you never know. My 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 bet, you know, if I had bet the house, if I had to, I'd say she's not dead.
0: Yeah, I I could see it going either way. I mean, they gave her what they presented was fairly definitive, but at the same time, they visually, they were very definitive for Nick Fury, and that was a fake out and they had an explanation for it. So that still is there and a possibility for Maria Hill. And, and we'll just see how it shakes out over the next four episodes or maybe within the Marvels or wherever it's addressed if uh, if Maria Hill indeed appears again in the MCU. But then we cut to the news. so we see how the world is reacting to the bombing in Russia. And we see that the plan is working An American has been blamed. It looks like it's um, Russia is seeing it as a declaration of war by America. And we see that as far as the the toll, uh, we're told that over 2000 are dead. Rhodey says later in the episode that it could be that it will be much more than that by the time they sort through uh, all of the rubble from the site of the bombing. And we are shown via talking heads on, on TV the U.K. Prime Minister Pamela Lawton, played by Anna Madeley, uh, NATO Secretary General Sergio Caspani, played by Giampero Udica. Uh, uh, Russia, or I already mentioned Russia, is talking about it being a declaration of war by America. And then a not-at-all-thinly-veiled FXN News, standing in for another cable news network in the real world, uh, has a host named Chris Stearns who is saying it's a false flag and there's no way the Americans were responsible for uh, the bombing in Russia. Meanwhile, uh, there's also a conversation between Gaia and Gravik where Gravik talks about seeing Nick Fury. And um, when she talks about why he didn't kill Nick Fury, says you don't uh, punish a man by giving him what he wants. So Gravik is under the impression that Fury wants to die and uh, isn't going to give him that. Felt like it was more of a punishment to take Maria Hill away, which is, of course, what uh, Fury believes uh, was the motivation behind that anyway. Um, and also we see where just graphic feels of, about Nick Fury, that, that Fury isn't going to be much of a, a match for him going forward. But we're introduced to, I want to cut, because this is on the way to a meeting. And who is in attendance w- uh this meeting? All the characters we were just introduced to via all the talking heads on TV. So the scroll Council meeting includes that UK Prime Minister, the NATO Secretary General, that FXN news host, and a few others, and they are all indeed scrolls. So not all, not only in this episode are we told that there are approximately one million scrolls on Earth, we see that they have already infiltrated some of the highest ranks within media, within international politics. That the scrolls are very well embedded uh, with where they are right now within the uh, within the council. And that would be another really good question for Talos, is how much he knew about that, although he did know who was in the—presumably knew who all was in the Council, because he met with—or one of the members of the Council who wasn't on board with Gravik eventually calls him uh, after this scene. But the Scroll Council meeting, they expressed that they're not exactly thrilled with Gravik's actions, um, and Gravik gives his own speech about how he prefers dogs to humans and gives his own reading of the, of course, repeated violence throughout human history— and Gravik points out that, as we talked about at the very for the very top of the show, that Fury broke a promise and also accused Fury of abandoning them. And uh, Gravik says that Earth will be our home because I will take it. Humans were already destined to consume themselves. And in uh, Gravik's mind, all he's doing is hastening the inevitable while providing the Skrulls with a with a new home. There is a reference to the Avengers, like what will they do if the Avengers show uh, show up? Gravik just says he has a plan uh should that uh should that occur. And now Gravik is the one who is making a promise. As he has a after he refers to Fury's broken promise, Gravik makes a promise of their own that if they put their faith in him, he will indeed succeed in this war and, and provide this new home for them. And then immediately the prime minister, so this was all pre-planned between Gravik and the Prime Minister nominates him to be the scroll general that it can't be about the council anymore there's got to be one leader to lead them through this conflict and everyone submits at the table and acknowledges gravik as the new Skrull general save for one shirley who isn't on board and she gets a great line um and uh, sita indrani is uh, is the actor and she has a fantastic line where she says we did not end up homeless refugees because we were unwilling to wage war we ended up homeless refugees because we were too willing so that's a different perspective from a scroll on the cree scroll war and the scroll's own role within that conflict i would love to know more about where that perspective came from because the, the it's really been characterized more as the cree attacking the scrolls and i don't know that this really changes that but it just shows that the 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 decision perhaps at least from her perspective was maybe a bit more complicated than simply the scrolls trying to defend themselves. Maybe there was some other option that other scrolls were were vocal for and, and in favor of, as opposed to an all out war that the scrolls ultimately lost. But I, I love seeing just that different perspectives within the ranks of the scrolls, even at this highest level of this scroll council. And I also like Gravik's response to it, that when she says she's not going to submit that Gravik actually respects that, even says, if I had a, another hundred like you, I could take on the universe. You go in peace, sister. You will not be harmed. And then Shirley steps outside and she updates Talos, who wants her to set up a meeting between Talos and Gravik. This is another scene that I thought was really, really good. Um, I think Gravik being able to state his case. And I, as I said, the, the writing, the dialogue in this, as the characters are giving their perspective and their reasoning behind the ways that they think and, and sharing uh, with us, the audience, of how exactly they're thinking and, and got to these places that they are to justify in their minds, not necessarily in ours, but in their minds, the actions that they take. All of that was really done, uh, really well done. And Gravik and Shirley in this scene, um, they both get to be very clear, very concise and effective in explaining their position and in ways that could potentially, you know, theoretically represent the views of, of many other scrolls with differing opinions on the kree Scroll war and now this other war that they're signing up for on earth and it's a situation where from the scrolls perspective you see a lot of gray no easy answers and you see the amount of power of course that the scrolls already have is very well demonstrated in this scene if i had one knock on this scene it is just how fast it happens they show us these high profile individuals and then they immediately say they're scrolls it might have been cool to let us live with who these characters are and see their actions for a little bit before revealing that they were scrolls not just Here's a couple people who, by their title, we automatically say are big deals, and now turns out uh, we will tell you right now that they. We will also tell you pretty much right away that they are Skrulls, Letting that sit for a bit to be a, a little bit more of a reveal, even if it's just a little bit later in the episode, just not the very next scene. I thought might have made that reveal carry a, a bit more weight and pack a little bit more of a punch. So the the. The placement of the scene immediately after introducing these characters on in the, the newsreel that I don't love but the actual scene itself I thought was great
1: yeah this is something that I I, I love this first of all I want to give you know Chris Stearns aka Christopher Christopher Chris, McDonald Christopher
0: McDonald Shooter McGavin
1: dude I, well not just that but I like know. see it, everything I, I, he, he's in he's talking about character actor man oh fantastic this guy He's phenomenal. Uh, obviously, Ruck Room for a Dream. Uh, He has an outstanding role there. Um, One of my favorite movies ever, SLC Punk. He plays Steve-O's dad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just, just a great, great all-around actor. And yeah. seeing him in this... It's just, He's ugh. also
0: been fantastic as uh, a character named Marty in Hacks, the uh, HBO mm-hmm. or HBO Max or now Max series, whatever, that's had a, a couple of seasons. And I know they're working on season three, but... Uh, I love seeing him pop up again in that show because he was great on it. But also, uh, I think that was the first thing I'd seen him pop up in in a little while. So it was nice to kind of get a reminder of, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, Christopher McDonald is really freaking good. Um, not that anyone forgot, but just for whatever helpful reminder uh, can can be there. And so having him and, and I think it was right around the time I was really digging him in that show that the news came out that he was joining um, secret Invasion, and I was very excited about that edition, and maybe yeah. that's where some of my disappointment is actually coming from. Paul, is I'm like, okay, yeah. I, I really want to see this guy be a big deal in this because he's he's got way more to offer than what they gave him just so far in this episode.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, and, and I almost I can't forget Dirty Work either. Dirty work. One of my favorite all time favorite comedies with with Norman Donald. He's in, he's great. Um, Yeah. This is something that I I love this. And to me with Gravic, when I said before that, I think there's more to to Fury, not finding a home base. Gravic being like, Oh, we got it. It's in fact that it's him. There's something there. There's something there that maybe, again, I don't know quite sure what it is, but there's something more than what they want. And he's somehow manipulated, I think through other people, um, that they want to stay there on earth for a reason. And I, and I'm kind of wondering if it has to do with the fact that he never felt like he belonged with his own. Cause I'm going to say, it, I think Fury will be his, his, his father that he, he ends up being that, that surrogate father that, you know, tries to, you know, and he never feels somehow, um, a part of the world for whatever reason. And I don't know. And I'm curious if if I'm right, what that is. But I think he there is there is a personal vendetta or um, uh, motivation for him to stay on Earth personally. I think that's where it's going to stem from. And he's using well, that. I think
0: it's also think about how much time he spent there and the fact that he was exactly. young. Mm-hmm. To him, it is home. And if you think about his time um, as a child and a lot of that being spent in a very hostile environment it. During the kree Scroll War, and then behind enemy lines after his parents were killed, that the only place that Gravik has ever felt like was home, or even felt a little bit like home, probably was Earth. And so, I, I think it's it's fairly, it, it's fairly simple from that perspective of, in a very practical sense, like this is just where I've been. So yes, this is home. Um, and yeah. if you're not going to let it be my home, I'm going to take it and, and make sure exactly. that, it, that it is my home. Mm-hmm. But I also think, uh, to your point, it's not just about wanting a home and, and feeling like Earth is already good enough. There is something very specific, like even in that scene with Gaia, when he's talking about only vapors and you don't punish a guy by giving a guy what he wants. He's acting very aloof in terms of how he feels about Nick Fury. That's that's fake. That, that is something that is him. That's him shielding himself and anybody around him from knowing the true depth of how he feels hurt by Nick Fury. It's not just a promise was broken and I'm gonna make sure that it is fulfilled. It's not just that, it's who broke the promise and it's who that person, Nick Fury, means to Gravik. And and it's not just because Gravik met him when he was young. Yes, there is definitely more to that relationship. And as you said, a a surrogate father-son relationship is most likely, but there could be some other very emotional dynamic between the two of them, um, and yeah, I mean, I, it will definitely be a missed opportunity of this show, and I think we would call it out as such if the only flashback we get between Fury and Gravic is the one we saw in this episode. There's more to it that we definitely need to, um, yeah. but based on what we know now, I feel like there's definitely more that we need to see in subsequent uh, flashbacks, but speaking yeah. of Gravic. He returns to New Skrullos as a humble hero. He says something to Pagan, who then uh, who doesn't seem to be all that comfortable with what Gravik just told him. Pagan then meets with scientist Dr. Rosa Dalton, played by Katie Finneran, and her husband. we find out her husband, Dr. Victor Dalton, Mark Baisley. And meanwhile, Gaia has been trailing behind Pagan to see what's going on. In the conversation between Dr. Rosa Dalton, and Pagan, they refer to the Harvest, and they've been going these places for the Harvest and been coming up empty. There's also a very big machine in this room, so some part of big science-y experiment. We later on, I'm going to jump, go out of order and jump a little bit forward in the episode to talk about what this is. So when Gaia goes to a computer later on to see what the Harvest is, we see records of these DNA samples. We see something from Groot, presumably from when Groot was in the Battle of Wakanda on Avengers Infinity War. Uh, We see the Frost Beast that was unleashed on Earth in Thor the Dark World. We see the arm of Cull Obsidian that was severed in Avengers Infinity War. There's also a reference in there to Extremis, and then Gravik enters, um, calls Gaia's father, Talos, a coward, and then says they've found Brogan, uh, who's the one who had the American shell for the bombing, and they're going to go off to deal with that, which will bring us to a, a later point in the episode. But in terms of this component and we learn more from the interrogation that of course they're trying to do something to make the scrolls stronger that's what the harvest is about and meanwhile we see these very strong superpowered creatures and dna samples from them uh, being used uh, for the harvest as part of this and paul i think we already addressed some of this stuff and as much as we know about it now is very similar to what we saw in some of the trailers for this that This is the MCU version of creating the Super Skrulls with these abilities of Groot. And there was a moment in the trailer where it looked like there were some Groot-esque powers and we saw a reference to Cull Obsidian. So a lot of these things are are part of it. And look, Super Skrulls should be part of the MCU. And I know it's something that we're both pretty excited about, the way they're going about it. I don't think this limits all of what they can do in the future with potential Super Skrull stuff, but as a way to just introduce that concept I really love it. I really love when the MCU makes proper use of its own history um, in order to also combine that with what the new elements that they're bringing in from the comic books that they haven't before. I really like that that mix of it and the way that they're approaching it, um, and it also just adds to the plot. And it also says something about Gravik in terms of what he feels the Skrulls need in order to accomplish that, despite all the power that they already have. He feels like they need more if they're if they're ultimately going to prevail in this war that he's starting.
1: So I just want to point out that from the trailer and from what they're saying here, we're we are basically going to be getting the essential Super Scroll because you have the stretchiness yep. of Mr. Fantastic through Groot. You have Cold obsidians like. Thing arm right you've got extremis, heat yeah okay human torch so, yeah but the only thing it's missing is you know invisible invisible woman okay <laughs> and but you, 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 you kind of have
0: ice. some of that as a scroll because you can just change into being someone else
1: right right it, and but you also add the layer of the ice part of the uh, yeah. frost giant so well I but mean, i don't know
0: the, the frost beast doesn't like generate ice i, I guess that's my that's key, true Mike question for the frost beast is what are they getting out of that just besides like raw power strength. and strength yeah, power. which they sure. already kind of have from cull obsidian so i'm like what i'm curious what the frost beast is bringing to the table or maybe it won't like it's just it's just there with a list of other things that they've been putting together because hey they're going to be they need to look at all of it right to see what right. can actually enhance them what can actually make them stronger so i don't know right. the frost beast is just big and strong there's not really Ice any other cake. definitive power
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nicely that, done. No, oh, I'm so smart. No, um, <laughs> I, I do think I do think that that's what they're gonna go with, and I'm not sure if it's gonna be the same character um, name and, and everything. I would I wouldn't be mad, you know. And, and the one thing I would say, I wonder how they're gonna do it. Is if one they keep like like in this in a comic book, Super Scroll can do. I think yeah. majority of the like, you know, stretchy things and things like that. But he's. I wonder if only one part of his body can do certain things, right? Like maybe the extremists is, can only be part of, you know, one arm, one arm can be only yeah. one. You know what I mean? Like what well, arm can only be a cool obsidian. Yeah, and, and, I
0: mean, and, I think they're going to be pretty powerful. Because look, this when Gravix says he has a plan in case the Avengers show up, this is the plan, right? Of course. This yeah, yeah, is yeah. how he would match up with the Avengers. Although... I would say at this at this point, depending on what Avengers you get, um, the power set you're pulling from is not going to be enough. Um, We'll see. uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't expect a a big uh, Avengers assembly in this show, so it may not be something that he actually has to uh, that he actually has to deal with here. But yeah, I I think it's really cool the way that they're setting this up. And I like adding more layers to Gravik's plot as the antagonist here and then. We cut to uh, the emergency, as I said, I I jumped a little bit ahead there, Uh, moving back to the emergency security summit in London. Rhodey is there, and when he's asked why Nick Fury and Maria Hill were in Moscow, he just says he's aware of allegations that Fury and Hill were present in Moscow, and if they were there, um, they would have had a right to be there as private citizens. They were not there as part of any sort of U.S. government-sanctioned operation. Rhodey is asked why President Ritson is not there. And he said Ritson doesn't have to answer for this. Um, And of course, the prime minister, who is a Skrull from the UK, who is leading this interrogate or leading this uh, these questions, Rhodey is basically shutting it all uh, shutting it all down. This scene I found very, very interesting in Rhodey's approach because I could understand him being short tempered at the same time Rody really doesn't do a great job uh, with diplomacy in this scene. He does come across as confrontational. He even talks about carpet bombing Slovakia. And I know he says that off mic, but it was still audible for people in the room to hear it. Rody was not de-escalating that situation. He was escalating. It's almost as if he was doing it intentionally. Um, But I want to I'll save that track for the very next scene which is uh, an even better scene, a meeting between Rhodey and Nick Fury. And there's a great back and forth to open the scene, talking about the stakes of World War III and, and everything that Rhodey is concerned about, Fury sharing those same concerns. But then we get into the secret invasion talk track of it all, with Fury pointing, asking Rhodey, how well does he actually know his security detail? What if they were all spies? And then Rhodey points out that he actually does know about Skrulls, and he's known about Skrulls for about 15 years, and Fury says that the invasion is real, it's actually happened already, we're being invaded, and we can't even tell who the invaders are. Rhodey references calling in their friends, obviously the Avengers, but Fury thinks the Skrulls would just duplicate the heroes and frame them as terrorists. So there's your plot reasoning for why Fury doesn't want to involve the uh, Avengers, which... Does make sense. Like, I I understand Fury's perspective on that. I also do think, though, that maybe the Avengers help outweighs the risks. But there's also the issue that isn't necessarily highlighted by Fury, but we also seem to be aware of it. What actually is the status of the Avengers these days Um, anyway? Although that's not something we get an explanation of here in uh, here in this scene. And Gravik, of course, we know already has a plan should the Avengers get involved. Um, Fury wants Rhodey to just back him. And Rhodey says that he can't. And wrote in when Fury talks about protecting the world is, uh, is Rody's job. Rody says he's protecting the world by protecting the United States seat at the table. When Fury makes a comment about helping Rody to get his seat and Fury asks if that means that Rody that Fury thinks that Rody owes him something, Fury gives a, an impassioned speech about how they owe each other, how they wrestled power from mediocre men like Alexander Pierce. Um, and they need to make that power mean something. And Rhodey has, uh, unbeknownst to Fury, already made travel plans for Fury. He understands everything that Fury is saying. He understands all of the risks, all of the stakes that Fury has outlined to him with uh, respect to the scrolls. But then he says, and I'm going to read these next two lines because I thought they were really great, really well, really well written, and just delivered perfectly by Don Cheadle. The reason we wrestled this power from mediocre men who don't look like us was not simply to turn around and hand it to mediocre men who do. The point of this power is to be uncompromising, to be unsparing, to be able to sit across from a man we greatly admire, with whom we share an entire professional, personal, ancestral history with, and tell him without any reservation that he's fired and nobody sent. When Fury asks if Rhodey was sent to fire uh, to fire him, he says he wasn't sent by anybody. Rhodey volunteered for this. Uh, he volunteered for this task to go out and fire Nick Fury, and then he talks about Fury being out. As Fury gets away, he's not going to take the ride uh, that Rhodey has set up for him. Fury says, I'm Nick Fury. Even when I'm out, I'm in. So Fury's still doing the the tough talk, but he betrays that immediately for us as the audience. He doesn't let Rhodey see it, but as soon as he gets out of there, he collapses on a bench. This has totally affected him um, very much emotionally to be fired by his friend Rhodey, and also have his friend Call him a mediocre man, because that's the mediocre man that Rhodey was referring to, in that in that scene. It was really brutal in in how uh, Rhodey delivered all of that information to Nick Fury, which just begs the question: Why was it so personal? Why was it so brutal in the way that Rhodey basically said not only said no to Nick Fury? but then went about firing him. I thought overall it was an outstanding scene. It said acting, writing, everything just absolutely terrific. I kind of, I really do hope that this is a scene that was between Rhodey and Fury because I I want it to be those characters who we've known the whole time. But I I certainly have my suspicions that this is not Rhodey. And I know I'm not the only one. Everybody's been talking about, is this Rhodey a scroll? And there's a lot of reasons why we would think that. In the, uh, in the emergency summit meeting before this scene. Rhodey is in a, a situation where really his job is to de-escalate, and that's not exactly what he does. He's unnecessarily confrontational in that scene. It's not the best way to go about it. And you could just say Rhodey was frustrated and angry, and that got the better of him in that moment, and he didn't go about things the best way that he could. Or maybe he really thought strategically that was the best thing to do, was to be really tough and and really firm and hope that everybody else would back down. But I I think there are flaws within that strategy, flaws within that thinking that Rhodey might otherwise uh, be aware of. But also, in the scene with Fury, he's firing the one guy, when we talk about strategy... Rhodey might know about the existence of Skrulls, but clearly Fury knows more than anybody else that Rhodey is currently aware of, as far as we know, and Fury would have the most knowledge of the Skrulls and the depth of this invasion at this time, as far as Rhodey would be aware. And so, strategically, it doesn't make sense to fire Nick Fury, even if it's not necessarily... Even if you don't want him to be in the lead, maybe you would still bring him in and still have him be involved in some way. But then also the way that the things Rhodey says to Fury and how he goes about firing him and and the fact that he volunteered to fire Nick Fury rather than this being an actual assignment that Rhodey was given by the president or anyone else. He made it very, very personal beyond what was necessary in terms of making it personal. And so I just have that question. Is Rhodey really this angry with Nick Fury Is that really what's happening here? Which it is possible. I mean, the way that that Fury tried to appeal to Rhodey, I could understand how maybe he was offended by that and maybe didn't necessarily see that as the right way for Fury to go about asking for help. And also Fury just continues to do things on his own and then only asks for help when he's when he's caught or when there's no other choice. It's not something that Fury was involving Rhodey in. From the very beginning. So there might be things that Rhodey has taken personally and that he feels betrayed by. And maybe that's why he's made it so personal. There is that possibility, and that would be perfectly justifiable within the story. But there's also the whole other side to it of. It's not really Rhodey being that angry. It's a Skrull posing as Rhodey who is trying to remove Nick Fury from the equation as best as he can or keep Nick Fury as far out on the in the distance as he possibly can and strand Nick Fury without any sort of help. Um and maybe the reason why it was so personal was also to emotionally manipulate Nick Fury and to try and we- continue to in this strategy of Gravik to weaken Nick Fury in any way that he can. So Sure, Rhodey could just be tired of and, and fed up with Nick Fury, um, just because of the two guys that they've they've always been and the conflicts that they've had now and in the past. But also, there's the possibil the very reasonable possibility that this Rhodey is indeed a Skrull, which I know would then beg the question of at what point was Rhodey replaced by a Skrull? I don't think they would go all the way back to. I don't think they would tell us that Rhodey was a Skrull the entire time in the MCU. Or if Rhodey was a Skrull the entire time in the MCU, then I guess Skrull Rhodey was the one who was friends with Tony Stark the whole time. I don't know that they would really change that dynamic and have Rhodey be friends with Tony and Tony not know who Rhodey really was. I, I don't really know that they would go back and alter all of those things. I, I just I would I'd be surprised if that were the outcome. It would be somewhere else, perhaps more recently, that Rhodey was replaced by a Skrull. If in fact Rhodey has been replaced, then I do think the real Rhodey will come back because I don't think it would be a scroll Rhodey in Armor Wars, which we know is is still in the plans right now for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But yeah, these scenes I thought were great, especially the scene between Rhodey and Fury. But certainly my my Skrull suspicions were uh, they they ticked up a little bit just with the way scroll the way Rhodey behaved in these scenes.
1: I love this scene, and I I took it at face value. I never thought Rhodey was a scroll, and and if he is, that's fine.
0: Yeah, uh, and I, is, I should let me go back to that point though. I hope he wasn't. I actually I do hope it was the the former of like it's just Rhodey being yeah. this fed up with Nick Fury in this moment.
1: And that's what I read it as on face value. And if he it is, it's fine. But I'm gonna go until I'm proven otherwise. I like this. I like where this is going. It's fine if it's a scroll. I get what they're doing. Blah blah, blah. but this was a great scene, two great actors, tune up scenery, man. When like when they fury delivers that very obvious, whatever you say, I'm out, I'm actually, you know, I'm in, I'm just like, I, I you know I was like, yeah. And then he left and He's like, Oh man. I'm like, Oh that's yeah, it, it was, <laughs> it was
0: performative as performative could be. Like there yeah. was, he was just Ugh. trying to act completely unfazed and unbothered, but he was totally phased and deeply bothered by what just happened.
1: Yeah. So, and, and I loved all that. It was great. It was a great, written scene yeah and because Nick Fury respects Rhodey
0: like he really respects Rhodey and so when somebody you respect who you've thought you've had their respect and their admiration they tell you that you're mediocre that hurts
1: yeah so so I say all that um great scene I I thought the only negative thing I would say is I thought how the the interaction between the guard and 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 Samuel Jackson was a little I don't know yeah it's just it was a little weird that dude was stiff
0: as a board but also he's kind of supposed to be like he, i sure so I'll, sure. I'll take it
1: yeah and that's again that i'm nitpicking i am nitpicking here but but because it was such a great you know greatly written scene and great greatly performed love yeah. the outcome i i forgive it love this love yeah. love.
0: because love, love. fury didn't really do anything special to get the drop on that guy so i'm like if this is roadie's security detail roadie is in mortal danger all the time uh because that, that was a minimal amount of effort for uh from fury to dispatch that guy but um in any event yes i thought it was a great scene yes the the scroll suspicions were were kind of there a little bit but as i said there's there's just as valid uh, an emotional perspective for just rody to always be rody and and be in that place emotionally with nick fury and to say the things that he said and by the way i I'm rooting for that to be the case because I actually, I do really want it to be the real Rhodey in that scene. And beyond that, um, I also, if that is the real Rhodey, that's something that has to be resolved. And I want that scene. If it's just a scroll manipulating Fury, there's nothing to resolve. If, however, that's Rhodey and Fury as friends having said these things to each other, especially with the things Rhodey said to Fury, that is something that has to be resolved, which means there's another great scene that would be coming our way whether that's in Secret Invasion or Armor Wars or somewhere else for another meeting between these two characters. Now let's talk about the interrogation of Brogan, which was, uh, of course, referenced in a scene I, I jumped to before um, with uh, between Gravik and Gaia. So we're at this butcher shop and Falsworth shows up, the great Olivia Coleman. And I love when the guy is talking about the door being locked. Well, what do you think that says about me and doors? Uh, I love that. I love her comeback uh, to all of that. And she takes over the interrogation of the air quotes, American bomber uh, Brogan. And she's able, before the interrogation begins, she gets the location of the escape hatch in the, you know, freezer room, refrigerator room. And just uh, just on a hunch that she might need to make a quick escape because she knows exactly what's coming. It is absolutely more than a hunch. But she already knew he was a Skrull, so Fallsworth, MI6, they know about Skrulls, um, just like S.H.I.E.L.D. with via Nick Fury knew about Skrulls, um, and really just cutting off that finger, she says, well, that's confirmed, and then in order to extract information, she gives him an injection to heat him up, Brogan gives up the existence of a machine that Graphic is building to make them stronger, and that is by a husband and wife pair of doctors, the, uh, the Dalton family that we met earlier on in the episode. Meanwhile, Gravik and company arrive. They dispatch of the Russians who had been holding and interrogating uh, Brogan. I thought this was really great action. I thought with Kingsley Benadir and, and obviously his stunt double and Killian Scott as Pagan and their doubles, I really liked the action on this. It was It was brief. It, it certainly wasn't as long as some of the action sequences in Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which I know is the the comparison that we keep going back to for this series for a lot of obvious reasons. In terms of the visceral quality of the action, that's where I felt this week it was more of a match for Winter Soldier than maybe we got last week with I know some of the criticisms you've had. So I'm interested to hear how you feel about the, the action in this scene. I thought it was really good, but the highlight for me obviously uh, was Olivia Colman I mean, Fallsworth does take her leave via the escape hatch and then we we see that Gravik and Pagan they do retrieve Brogan but then ultimately Brogan Pagan has to execute or doesn't has to but ordered by Gravik and carries it out to execute Brogan in the woods on the way back to uh on the way back to new Skrullos um that by the way even though what we, we know the information Brogan gave up but Gaia changed it in, in order to throw Gravik off the scent of what uh of what Falsworth may have learned Instead, calls in the location of a safe house. So that's what Gravik and Pagan think Brogan gave up in the interrogation was the location of a, sta- uh, a safe house that we see uh, has in fact been been raided. But in this scene, the highlight for me, Olivia Coleman as Falsworth during this interrogation. I don't know if I've ever seen somebody be that combination in one scene of being charming, charismatic, intimidating, and sadistic. Um, she mm-hmm. was just she was just terrific in in that sequence. She's in the, the episode for, what, three, four minutes, and mm-hmm. they are as good as any three, four minutes in the episode. Well, maybe not quite as, uh, I don't know. Samuel L. Jackson and Ben Mendelsohn in the train scene, Samuel L. Jackson and Don Cheadle in the scene between uh, Fury and Rhodey. A lot of great scenes in this one, but Olivia, Olivia Coleman was uh, once again a highlight with a minimal amount of screen time. But as I said, curious uh, with your thoughts on the action, because I thought the action within the butcher shop was was really good this week.
1: No, th- this is a great, this is all great. I love this. I thought the setup was great. Uh, it was, the butcher shop was very uh, dis, um, disarming slash uh, just uh, very, uh, what's the word, what's the word we're looking for? Night, um, Creepy. Uh, yeah, I, it was. It, uh, it was, it was very, it was a very kind of like. It's weird when somebody does
0: the, when somebody's cutting off a finger, injecting somebody with something that heats them up to 160 degrees Celsius and smiles throughout the entire thing.
1: Well, yeah, but but, but and, and acts like
0: and has the tone of a friendly chat as it's all happening. Right,
1: right, right, but you you set that up with the butcher shop, which again is not that's kind of a little bit of a cliche, but but that's what, why what?
0: you use the cliche is to uh, right. do your favorite it's, thing, subvert the expectations
1: exactly. But also, it makes it even more um disconcerting when you when you look at everything because of all the hanging meats. But like also in the room, you have that hanging thing right behind it with a big hole. It's like it was very. It was. It is very uh, just, just kind of unnerving. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. Hey, unnerving. we're
0: we're stretching the boundaries of where Marvel is willing to go in terms of yeah darkness and and violence on Disney Plus.
1: Yeah, and, and that was like again, that was a great. That it, de- it definitely set up this whole scene and you bring her, um, juxt- uh, the whole juxtaposition with her coming in with her demeanor and everything with all that. Like you did subverting expectations. The action stuff afterwards. I loved it. I thought this was great, and I also want to think that maybe we're going to be getting more. This is the introduction of the MI six aspect of um the MCU. This is like kind of like the start of it, because maybe now with the scrolls, maybe MI six is like, hey, we need to have our own super soldiers or you know super powered kind of like you know I say Jack Flag. Um, or not Jack Black, oh my god, Union Jack, excuse me. Uh, Jack Fox is a different character. Um, Union Jack character or, or or Captain Britain, those characters that we're gonna be getting in here. That's very much, you know, could you be maybe planting that seed here? I don't know, but man, the, um I love I love the scene. I thought it was great. And you're right. I love the action, I thought it was great. This is one of the better this again i love the show man the show's good like i i don't understand why people aren't getting more hyped for it. I, th- I think it's really well done so i mean it, i
0: understand it, it to an extent good. because it, it doesn't have i mean in terms of action sure. this is the extent of the action in the episode and it's very very brief and i understand there's you know usually an expectation of more action and or more comedy within mcu stories like there there are not as many quips and, and jokes and that's not I'm not somebody who's ever complained about or found fault in the humor within MCU stories at the same time. I don't feel like it always has to be present all the time. There are certain moments. This is, I think, the very nature of what's happening in these scenes that are part of these episodes, that they are just very heavy, very emotional. There's not necessarily a lot of room for some of the humor that's been uh, part of, I, I think if you were to try and inject more jokes into a series like this, then it would be what some people have. Uh, I feel like, I and mean, I've disagreed with criticisms of the MCU where the jokes, the quips are wedged in. I don't think they really have been most of the time in the MCU, the vast majority of the time in the MCU. I'm sure there's a few examples here and there where I might agree with it, but overall it's been a non-issue to me, but I feel like if they were to do stuff like that in secret invasion, then it might start to feel more like it's been wedged in. I know that this isn't necessarily the most fun episode, and it just depends on what you find exciting as a viewer. I find these back-and-forth debates between characters and these intense emotional scenes between characters like uh, Fury and Talos, Fury and Rhodey, and also this the Skrull Council meeting, stuff like that, it's a different kind of fun as a viewer, but it's still fun for me and very engaging as a viewer to really be connecting with characters on those levels and being able to hear and, and understand their perspective that that they're approaching this story from through all the actions and all the choices that they're going to make throughout this story. I love that. And I think the, the MCU has always had material like that when it's been at its best. But that's also why, though, I, I mentioned that maybe it'd be a, the... The it's part of a, a six part story as opposed to it is its own like satisfying episode as part of a larger story. I do feel like maybe that's a you know that I, I mentioned that coming up as an issue for the first episode and being a bit of an, an issue again in the second episode. Uh, upon rewatch, though, it didn't quite feel like as big of a, an issue as maybe it felt the first time because I was just diving even deeper into these uh, into the great scenes that we've highlighted here, but. There is that portion of it that you're not getting the full sampling of things you might normally expect from the MCU. This is the intense emotional debate episode of Secret Invasion, and so maybe it doesn't feel like as complete of an MCU experience as people have had in the past, but I, I don't know. For whatever reason, look, if, if a show or mo- MCU movie doesn't resonate you, for whatever set of reasons you have, that's valid. That's fine. I get it. it it's it's okay. I'm I'm not here to debate anybody else's opinion of it. Um, hopefully just highlight why we're enjoying it so much. And and, and I do think that, look, uh, I think a lot of people are enjoying the show. I just also think that for whatever reason, you know, it's not drawing some of the hype that we've seen from other MCU stories. But look, part of the nature of the MCU, though, is people go back and revisit and catch up on things that they've missed. And so I feel like anybody who's missing out on Secret Invasion right now might find reason to go back and and check it out and be pleasantly surprised. Because, yeah, it's really great through these first two episodes. But that sounds like a wrap up. We have a whole big reveal at the end of this episode to make sure that we cover. And that is when Fury goes home. Yes, Nick Fury has a home. um, He also has a wife. So a character we met as Vara in Skrull form at the beginning of the episode. We see again here at the end of the episode But then she transforms into a human form, most likely the the new face that she adopted as part of the initiative that Fury was introducing at the very start of the show. And in the credits, we see this character is named Priscilla, played by Charlene Woodward, who has worked with Samuel L. Jackson before. She was his mother in the Unbreakable slash Mr. Glass uh, series. But um, this reveal of Nick Fury having a wife I got to say, Paul, one of the not the very first thought I had, the the first thought was like, holy crap, like what is what just happened and what does all of this mean? Um, But then I also kind of laughed and I thought of you because uh, famously, one of your least favorite scenes in the MCU is the Barton family farm in Avengers Age of Ultron. And now we see where Nick Fury originally got the idea of having a, a secret family household was uh, Fury was, and why he'd be willing to do that for Clint Barton, because it looks like Fury had already done that for himself, for this life that he has carved out with his wife. And he does put on a wedding ring when she reminds him that he was uh, that he was forgetting something. And then they embrace, we go to credits, and yes, Nick Fury has a wife and she's a scroll. Does that mean that Nick Fury is also a Skrull? I don't think so. I mean, I I think that Nick Fury as a human could just as easily have fallen in love with a Skrull, especially since it it was pretty clear that he was working closely with Vara uh, in the first place. So this is a a very interesting reveal. It it doesn't really make me question Fury's Skrull status. Maybe it should, and maybe we'll find out that Nick Fury uh, is a Skrull at some point here in the MCU, but that's not really my suspicion right now for Secret Invasion. I may be only a few episodes away from being wrong about that. But just the fact that Fury has carved out this life for himself, I think is very interesting. When we talk about an unexpected character arc, unexpected things being, uh, you know, surprising reveals for Fury, it's not just about, oh, Nick Fury has a wife and you didn't know that. Like, you thought he was making that up when he referred to a wife throwing him out in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And he was in that moment, he was making up the story. But as far as him actually having a wife, that turning out to be... A very real thing. It does help us learn more about Nick Fury and understand him a little better because I I think for Nick Fury, we've always felt like his emotional attachments were never as complete, that there was always something that he was holding back. Um, and maybe something that he some level of connection that he wasn't fully allowing himself, but he actually has been. And Nick Fury is a more emotional person, a much more vulnerable uh, vulnerable person than we have ever really expected or, or been shown in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So the depth of, that's being added to this character, the dimension being added to this character who's already been around for so long in the MCU that this show is doing in just a couple of episodes, like seeing Nick Fury have this whole domestic life that we didn't know about, while also showing him being emotionally affected by things in, in ways that he hasn't shown to us. You know, the camera just hasn't been there for those moments in the past, like that moment immediately after the meeting with Rhodey. That's what I appreciate more than anything else about this reveal and and everything else is I feel like I am getting to know and understand Nick Fury on an even deeper level than I ever have before. And that's coming at it from a perspective of of feeling like I I knew just about everything there was to know about Nick Fury in the MCU. I love being uh, I, I love being proven on a weekly basis in the show so far, just how wrong I was to think that.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So here's my deal on Nick Fury. I loved it. I love this reveal. Now, that being said, I, I, I didn't even think about the Barton stuff. I, I'm just been, you know, at this point, the characterization of Hawkeye have kind of come to accept. I don't like how it's revealed in the movie with in Age of Ultron. That's a whole different podcast. the one and and mainly it goes against the characterization of Hawkeye from the comic books. That's the biggest one I would say. And where it shows up where, where it shows up in the movie too. It just feels very, I don't know, just again, cliche or whatever. Right. But again, whole different podcast. So there's a number of different reasons why I don't like the whole secret family, but Nick Fury having this, this makes more sense. I think from narrative wise, I think of the story, of what we're doing of what he is as a character I think in any interpretation of Nick Fury this all works I think this would happen with with that any version of Nick Fury whether it be Nick Fury's 616 version you know before you know he became the new watcher character um the unseen uh the new his son version I mean you know the ultimates version whatever version you want to talk about this is this is exactly I think lines up with that characterization and I think that's what's important. For when you deviate different things and whether it be for an adaptation, what have you, you have to make it have it make sense to the character. And this makes sense. Nick Fury, you know, finding love with an alien character that, you know, that he helps helps out back in the day and has a secret life with makes sense to me because he's caught up in that world. And he's not going to and given his background to Sean of being again, growing up in segregation, things like that. He's not gonna hold that against, you know, a, a a different someone else, right? So it all makes sense. And I love this reveal because of what it it's what it tells us, what it means about Gravic, because she's the one that introduces Gravic. And there is automatically that's why I put in the whole idea of like, okay, there's a relationship there. Um even yeah, further than what we see. Not that hard scene.
0: to imagine Gravic living in that house for a while
1: exactly in growing up and, and her in again, them being his mom and dad. And I, it just, the possibilities start flowing through my mind. Like, do they have, do they have their own biological children where they're, you know, what does that mean from a power standpoint? Like mutants, if you will, right? Like, yeah, and I have a whole thing with mutants here. I'll maybe get into at some point. before we leave, we have time, but I just want to say, I love this. I thought it was fantastic. Um, I, I, I meant to look at this while I was watching it, Sean. I'm glad you confirmed it. I was like, is that the mom from Unbreakable? Because <laughs> there's a whole thing in glass when like, it, like I remember people laughing and like, they're like, the, you know, she's like, wait a minute, why is she in this movie? Because she put pl- the mom shows up in the glass um, and it's like, why? She's like, you know, She's the same age as Nick Fury or uh, Samuel Jackson, so having her show up as a love interest is, is great. I thought, um, you know, because she was great. I love I loved her in those movies. She's she's fantastic in those movies. Um, so yeah, I, I thought this was a fantastic reveal. I loved it and it, it knocked me on my feet. And I love it when the MCU can do these things for a comic book fan like myself, where I'm like, that's like I comics, and I pull up my glasses and I'm like, Hur! you know, but <laughs> but. This is where I'm like, I love it. I love where they deviate within the characterization and it makes sense. It's kind of, you know, this is apples and oranges, but it's kind of like the, uh, MCU version of Spider-Man, you know, great power, great responsibility. Like it does, it's not Uncle Ben, it's Aunt May. It all makes sense in the context of everything else, but it's in the, within the characterization of the character. Obviously, if you had Tony Stark do it instead of Aunt May or Uncle Ben, I think I think Spider Man fans would probably would all rebel and probably like have rated uh, you know wherever the MCU is located in Hollywood down there in, in Los Angeles. So, but I digress. I'm just saying, I think it all works. I love it. I thought it was a big surprise. I wasn't anticipating it. I. I, what I knew I'm like, oh, we're gonna meet the wife and then when she when they, when she when she showed up I went, oh, oh God And I'm like I, I knew exactly what they were doing right and I'm like, oh my god. so it was it was interesting um I, I loved it. I thought that was great and i I can't wait honestly I liked I really liked season one or season one episode one I loved episode two even more and I'm I can't wait for episode three.
0: Yeah, I think episode two is the, the stronger of the two. I mean, I think they're both really strong episodes to start, but this is what you said it before, but this is what you want from a series. You want it to keep getting better as it goes along. I mean, it, as great as I thought this episode was, yeah, I I hope that episodes three through six will be even better than this, but I, I love where it's at uh, right now, and, and I thought this reveal was really great, and, and it's a great way to kind of, send it off and that's where i mean the more i'm thinking about it and you know having the benefit of of rewatching it a, a little bit more i am starting to feel even better about this episode as uh, a, a little bit more of a i don't want to say complete story with its own beginning middle and end plot there's not like an issue of the week that was resolved here but in the same way like this actually does feel like a good time for a break because th- it was a pretty heavy episode and so then to just end it with a big reveal and say okay Like we we've been through so much already over the past hour that we're just going to give you a whole new set of questions that we can that you can start asking and we'll we'll start answering them for you in the very next episode. But uh, so it was a a decent spot for for a break. But I'm I'm just I'm loving the show so far. I think it's doing a lot of things that have been at the very best of some of the the best of the MCU. I think it's bringing forward a lot of that because it's It's way more about... I mean, there's a lot of big plot going on through all this spy stuff and now Super scroll plot and, and all of that. There's a lot of plot in this show so far, but look at how much time is being devoted to the characters and their emotions, their perspectives. It's really putting... Its focus, its emphasis, I think, in in the places that that just have the greatest yield, that have the the greatest payoffs emotionally, uh, at least for me anyway, as a viewer. So I'm loving it through these first two episodes. So th- that's all I have for the first two episodes, Paul. But yeah, I know uh, we have a little more time here. If you want to throw out your your mutant connection,
1: well, I it was just really quickly that I think just the fact that they do have their own children, like you know, with each other. If they, what, they you know, have the, their what, own children, if, if they did, and I'm, I'm not saying they should or they, they need to or anything like that, but if they wanted to go that route, you could, and introduce and have Nick Fury kind of you know in this universe in this in the uh, nine, nine 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 universe, if you, if I want to say it that, um, <laughs> which by the way I love when across the Spider Verse acknowledge that, um, the the one thing I would say is um, one thing I thought about the Secret Invasion is doing that. I'm. I'm curious. They, you know, they're, the whole idea of like they're living among us, with with the scrolls. I wonder if that now puts that storyline out for mutants. And I'm wondering if maybe the mutations are actually going to be happening more um, uh, linear. Like it's more. It's going to be happening like now, as of now, or maybe, or maybe it was like more rare back in the day. Because obviously, if you go back to Apocalypse, he's a mutant but that's you know yeah because remember I mean,
0: scrolls on earth only goes back to 1995 in the mcu as as far mm-hmm. as we know and and most of these scrolls from the sound of it from what talos described most of them um have arrived more recently because it really talked about more of what he was doing when nick fury was gone so right you know, i would say that the majority of these million scrolls have shown up within the past you know five to seven years in the marvel cinematic right. universe so i don't I don't know that this is where you know that there will be any connection between no, no, scrolls on think, Earth and, and mutants, them. but but there could no, no, be not,
1: not them. No, and I'm not saying them directly. I'm talking about like the story wise, like the story, like the fact that you because I I I always thought you can hide mutants for a long time, you know, and that's how you bring mutants into the MCU. That's what I'm. That's what I mean. I apologize. Like. Now this, you're using that idea for the scrolls instead. I wonder if you throw that idea out completely, and now you start having mutants come in more linear-wise. Like it's going to be more, more like more of a common thing as in the whenever they show up in the MCU, and then have mutant mutations kind of be more rare leading up to they all of a sudden like the Miss Marvels and those characters starting to pop up as with mutant powers. You get what I'm saying? Like it's, I feel that it's that's because they're using that whole idea of being in secret, you know, the X-Men being a secret, like the secret, like, like they're using a secret invasion. The, and the Marvel studios will be like, no, we can't, we can't do that again. And because we already did did that with it, with the secret invasion storyline, you get what I'm saying? Like, I wonder if that's, that now it's it's possible.
0: I mean, they um, also did, um, you know, they lived among us and we never knew with Eternals. Right. So like, it's, oh yeah it's a it's a card that they've already played and so yeah that's where i feel like they do have to find some other way to introduce mutants in the mcu and i know they already have um at least the idea of mutation in miss marvel so that's already part of it and then obviously we're going to get into the deadpool 3 of it all eventually and and there's a lot of things that are probably going to have big mutant impacts on the marvel cinematic universe and 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 uh, yeah They've walked among us without us knowing, yeah, you have a lot of scrolls doing that, and you already had a bunch of Eternals doing that. So do you want to play that same or even a, a similar card with the mutants? I don't know, but but we'll see. I have no idea what they're going to do with uh, mutants in the MCU. It's, it's a question that we've been asking for... I don't know how many years now, <laughs> several years. Yeah, um, and so I, I'll, I'll just wait and see on that. But as far as what we have here with these first two episodes of Secret Invasion, I think they've been outstanding, and I I also think they've done a really good job of just they have a an incredible cast in this show. I mean, mm-hmm. I know Marvel always got great casts, obviously, but they really have a, a lot of just heavyweights in terms of the the caliber of actors that are a part of this show. And they're just letting them chop it up and giving them great dialogue and giving them the space to really get the most out of these scenes and the emotional arcs for their characters. Um, it's been a treat to watch through these first two episodes, and I can't wait to watch because uh, you're all caught up to me now. So I have not I do not know what happens next week, um, but I can't wait to watch it. And then, of course, uh, talk about it with you, Paul, and and, and for yes. hopefully the enjoyment uh, of all of you folks who are kind enough to listen to us ramble on about these things we like so much. Uh, but that is it for this edition of MCU fan show. Thank you as always for listening. Um, also make sure you check out fan show plus Patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. Or if you search for fan show plus or the MCU fan show channel on Apple podcasts, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MCU fan show, Paul, where can they find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Herman22with2Ns, a.k.a. P Thug. Also, please check out my YouTube channel, The Comic Binge. Um, next week, uh, me and Chris will be debuting his new series, uh, Nights Never Die, the Grant Morrison issue-by-issue breakdown, where he'll be introducing uh, our good buddy Javi will be joining us. I think he'll be doing the show with, with Chris pretty much mainly. I might show up here or there, but the first zero episodes next week, We're going to talk about overall, kind of leading up to the Grant Morrison run of Batman. So really excited about that. I'm really excited Chris is finally doing this. This It's been a labor of love for him, a passion project, and I'm so glad he's doing it. So super excited to check that out. We also just – we literally went through two hours of Flash comic book recommendations, which, man, if you're looking for Flash recommendations, this this show's got you covered. I I mean I just stood back and said – all right, guys, go ahead. And they blew me away with some of the stuff in there. It's, I, I'm stoked to get read it. So yeah, check that out. Really appreciate it. And yeah, I appreciate everyone who's already subscribed and liked videos already.
0: And if you want to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, you may do so at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for Paul, I'm Sean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.